If you don't know me, I'm Matt. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's a great privilege to get to uh, study the Word of God with you. And uh, today we continue in a series that Todd uh, kicked off uh, last week, and that is called uh, Signs and Glory. And what it is, is it's a study on the Gospel of John. Now, we spent a lot of time together this last year in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes and Psalms and Proverbs. We spent about five months studying the Old Testament, and we, we loved that, enjoyed that. And also, as we started getting into like month three, I was like, oh, I start missing Jesus. I start miss talking about Jesus. And we get to do that now for a, a number of months together. Uh, from Christmas until Easter, we're going to be studying the gospel of John and studying who Jesus is and the power of Jesus displayed in that gospel. Before we dive into our scripture today, I want to just say a few words about the book of John, uh, just, just for background, just for your understanding. And the first thing that I want, to, I want to share with you is the contrast between John and the other three gospels. If you don't know, the first four books of the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, are called the Gospels, and they are the accounts of the life and the teaching and the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And they all have their own unique perspective. But Matthew, Mark, and Luke are typically grouped into uh, a category called the Synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the Synoptic Gospels. Now, if you've never heard that phrase before, it comes from the Greek, the, the prefix sin, not sin as in evil doing, but S-Y-N, meaning's the same like the word synonym, like it means the same. But in this case, synoptic, optic as in optical, as in vision, it means these three Gospels look the same. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are synoptic and that they, they look the same. That means is they follow the same pattern. They have a lot of the same uh, pieces to them. They follow the same order of events. They have a lot of the similar uh, teachings and, and moments. And, and you can kind of trace those. If you've read one of those Gospels, if you've read Matthew, then Mark and Luke are going to seem very familiar to you. Does that make sense? Matthew, Mark, and Luke are the synoptic Gospels. Now, John, on the other hand, is not one of the synoptic Gospels. John looks and feels very different. The same Jesus... The same salvation, the same redemptive message of, of, of uh, salvation through grace and faith, but uh, there's going to be a lot of differences. If you've, if you've read Mark, John might still feel very different to you. Let me give you a, a little orientation of some, some things which the Gospel of John leaves out. Now, I should also say that most people think that the Gospel of John was the last of the Gospels written, and they probably had access to the Synoptic Gospels, and so was able to say, hey, guys, you know, you forgot this part. How, you know, you gotta, you gotta, you gotta, we got to make sure this part gets told. And so there's some intentionality in, in the differences of this book. It's, this kind of completes the story. So here's some things that John leaves out. The Christmas story, the, 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 the narratives of the Christmas story, John begins very differently. You, you saw that last week in this kind of more philosophical treatment of the coming of Christ. You don't have uh, the manger scene, for example. The temptation of Christ is not there. All the narrative parables or not in John. The extensive teaching on the kingdom of God. That's what we did last year at this time, Christmas to Easter, is the theme of the kingdom of God. Primarily, we were studying the gospel of Matthew, but you don't have those in John. The Olivet Discourse, that means just the speech on the Mount of Olives, uh, and then the detailed account of the Lord's Supper. You don't have those in the gospel of John. But here's some things that you do have that you don't find in the synoptic gospels. The I am sayings, right? I am the, the, 
the way, the truth, and life. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. These are uh, unique to John. The farewell discourse is this extended um, speech or sort of goodbye address that he gives the disciples later in the book. And then this, and this is what we're going to be focusing on in the first half of our study from now until about Ash Wednesday, is the seven signs of Jesus, the seven signs of Jesus. Uh, when Jesus does miracles, when he does healings, when, when, when power flows from him in some transformative way, in the Gospel of John, they're given a unique term. They're called signs. And that's why we're calling uh, the study Signs and Glory. Uh, Bible scholars tend, when they're evaluating the, the, and kind of laying out the outline, they tend to divide the book of, of John into two books. The first half is traditionally called the Book of Signs. And the second half of John is called the book of glory. The first half is focused on these seven miraculous signs which are going to be teaching us and, 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 and revealing something about Jesus. And then the second half is, is the run-up to the cross and, and the kind of the revealing of the true glory of Christ. Bible scholars are, uh, are united in saying there were seven signs in the first half of the book of John. They are not united in which are the seven signs. So I'm going to show you eight, and I'll explain to you the little debate. Okay, so here are the signs. The first one, which we're going to study today, is the turning of the water into wine. Now, uh, Bible scholars enjoy wine, and so everyone has united on this particular sign. The next one is that some people say is the cleansing of the temple, but other scholars list that enfolded as part of the water to wine story. Next one, healing of the noble son, the healing of the lame man, the feeding of the great multitude, then the walking on the water. The other scholars fold that into the feeding of the multitude. Then there's the healing of the blind man and the raising of Lazarus. They all agree it begins at a wedding, and the last sign in this list is at a funeral of Lazarus. And the purpose of these signs, there's several purposes. We see a number of signs in the Old Testament, and, uh, and they, they have a purpose to them. They, they point to something else. There will be a baby. The baby's name will be Emmanuel. And by this, you will know this other thing to come. Right? It's a sign that points to something else. A sign also reveals a deeper meaning. A sign can be a symbol of some deep spiritual truth. This happens a lot through the prophets in the Old Testament, and, uh, and the prophets do some really wild stuff, okay? Ezekiel is instructed to cook his food over a cow patty, meaning, well, you know what that is, right? Uh, we, they're up in the hills uh, a lot, and he has to cook his food over one to show the filth and the defilement with which the people have defiled themselves uh, spiritually. And uh, another thing, Isaiah, Isaiah, the great prophet, is instructed to disrobe and to walk around and preach naked. Now, some of you pray for signs. Be careful what you ask for, okay? Because I'm not going there. But that's a symbol of, of the spiritual state of the people, you know, like, uh, like and, and, their, and their shame. And so there's these, these wild, like, like, like lengths uh, that, that are, are gone to. 
and, and, they, and they symbolize something. So a sign itself can contain within the nature of the sign the message that's trying to be conveyed. And then, and then also signs in the Old Testament will authenticate a message. So consider Pharaoh... Uh, who is approached by this guy Moses, this random guy who comes out of the desert and says, let my people go, says the Lord. Well, Pharaoh, who's this powerful king, is like, why should I listen to you? So what, right? What does he care? But then there's these miraculous signs, these, these plagues sent on Egypt, which authenticate, no, 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 you better take this guy seriously. This is the most high God that's sending this power. You know, take it seriously. It's authenticating the message that in fact, Pharaoh speaks for God. Now we see there's a, there's a line that comes near the end of the Gospel of John that in particular tells us the reasons for these seven signs that we're gonna be looking at. And it, it tells us this, we see this in chapter 20, verse 30. Yeah, this is kind of near the end of the story. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. It's like, hey, there's a lot of miracles, a lot of amazing signs, but but he says, but these are written. Like I chose to write down these particular ones that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. That you may believe in Jesus and that you may have life in his name. There's some, some people that regard the book of John as though it's written like a legal brief in which he's like, I've got a case and I'm looking for a verdict and the verdict that I'm looking for is that you will know that, in fact, Jesus actually is the Son of God and is your only hope of life and salvation. And I'm going to make the case to you. Exhibit A, Exhibit B, Exhibit C is going to walk through these signs which are proving a point both by power and by their symbolism. And the very first exhibit in this case to be made, right? I'm writing these signs that you may know and believe that Jesus is the Messiah, that he actually is the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Exhibit A, and here comes the first sign. Are you ready for it? All right, let's stand for the reading. This is Jesus' first sign, the Gospel of John. It comes in John chapter 2. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And when the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars the kind that were used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, and each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. And then he told them, now draw out some and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, and he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. And then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you have saved the best until now. 
What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. And after this, he went to Capernaum with his mother and brothers and his disciples and there they stayed for a few days. Lord God, we just pray right now that this, this simple story that many, many, many of us have heard time and time again would just come to life anew for us. May we understand it, and may we understand the deeper meaning behind it, God. We just pray that, in fact, your name would be spoken over each of us in this room, and we would be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So I, I want to explore this sign and the ones to come with you on three levels, because that's how John writes. Um, you're gonna, we're going to start with level one, which is just understanding the basic story and what it meant to just the people, the people in the room. We're going to start, that's level one, just understanding the story and what it meant to those people. And then later we'll go into the timeless truths uh, that are taught by it. So first of all, we should know that uh, a wedding uh, at this time in first century Palestine is a, is a big deal. I mean, it's a big deal today, but I mean, it's even a bigger deal there. It was a week-long event. And uh, when a bride and groom would get married, they, they put crowns on their head and refer to them as king and queen. They parade them around their community uh, so that everyone, the longest route possible, so that everybody would encounter them and they'd be announcing, hey, hey, you know, hey, all these guys are getting married. And then, and then they didn't get to go away on a honeymoon for a week. They actually became the host and hostess of a week-long party. So every day uh, in the morning, they'd set out the food and the, and the drink, and people would come and, and, and pay respects and say, hey, I'm so excited about you starting off in this new, uh, in this new endeavor of marriage, and we, we just want to be here and wish you well and support you. And then they just hang out in their home, and, and how would you like that, your first week of marriage, to play host to the whole village? But it was a great tradition of even kind of the humblest couples got to be king and queen for the day, and that's how they'd be referred to, and they could give out orders but running out of food or drink meant the party was over early. And that would be a great thud. That would be shame to them in community and also just kind of a bummer. It's like, I mean, I, mean, I bet there's some people in this room that you had a wedding and you dreamed it was gonna be perfect, but something went wrong, right? Right? I mean, there's always kind of something that happens uh, with a thud. But in this case, it's such a big thud, it would actually end the festivities. And, and, and people were like, okay, well, it's time to go home. I guess the, the DJ left early, so to speak. So let's all just head home. And it'd be, it'd be embarrassing to them and their family. Same thing as if you throw a party and just, you run out of food. Now, Jesus' mother, Mary, seems to have some kind of important role there because she takes ownership of the problem. And also we see that she starts, you know, kind of bossing around the servants, telling them what to do. So it seems that she maybe is a relative of, of, of the, the, the parents of the groom or, or, or a close friend. And so she's, she's trying to help them fix this problem. So she calls it not knowing what to do, not having the resources to go out and buy crates of of wine, she, she brings it to Jesus. She brings it to Jesus' attention and she says the words, oh my gosh, those are my words, they have no more wine. Like, oh, big, embarrassing problem. And Jesus says to her, woman, why do you involve me? Now, I think as Americans, we read this a little bit wrong because uh, uh, I certainly wouldn't have the guts to say that to my wife. I wouldn't say, woman, why do you involve me, right? Right? 
Sounds a little funny. <laughs> that's not how my marriage rolls. I hope it, if it's you, it would be careful. Uh, but that's not actually how this reads um, in, the, in the original Greek language. Uh, in fact, um, this is how in Homer, uh, this is how Odysseus addresses Penelope, his beloved wife. We also have instances of uh, Caesar Augustus addressing Queen Cleopatra in the same way. Uh, so it's all in terms of how it's used and how it's said. But you can read as lady or, or, or dear woman. Uh, why are you getting me involved here? It's not quite my time. Because Jesus knows what the fullness of his time is going to bring. Now Mary doesn't know what Jesus is going to do, but she has faith. You know what? I know Jesus. And I know Jesus is going to find some way to help these people. So she tells the servants, hey, whatever he says, do it. Okay. Your problem now, Jesus. Now nearby are these six large stone water jars that are about 20 to 30 gallons each. And Jesus orders that they're to be filled to the brim with water. And then he says, okay, now, now that they're filled to the brim, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. The master of the banquet is a different. It's like the head waiter. He's in a different room. He's kind of running the show. And he's like frantic. Oh, my gosh, I'm out of wine. What am I going to do? And they bring him some carafe full of what they drew out of these water jars. And he tastes it, and he's shocked. And he announces, oh, my goodness, this is, not, this is a fine wine. And then what ends up happening is instead of the groom being humiliated, right? He was not able to, he didn't properly prepare for this wedding. His family didn't have the means to properly kind of celebrate him. The party ends. Everyone's going to remember that he ran out of wine. Instead of that, the master of the banquet calls the bridegroom over and he says, wow, you are amazing. And he honors him and says, most of these schmucks here gathered today, they serve their good wine. And then they wait till people are kind of, uh, you know, a bit, a bit past their prime and will no longer notice the quality of the wine. And then they bring out the, the two-buck chuck. But you, sir, you stand out in honor because you saved the best for last. And now the party doesn't end with a thud. It ends with a celebration and it's joy. And he brings honor to this person who is at risk of embarrassments. And the wedding party continues. So that's what's happening on level one, just kind of the surface level. Here's what's happening around us. But in the Gospel of John, uh, the miracles are not just, just only just to help the one person in distress, not just to save this one person from humiliation. They're beyond that. It accomplishes that. But it also communicates us something amazing about who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And so I want to dive into level two now, just understanding the deep spiritual truth that this sign is teaching. Right from the outset, the very first sign that we just read is running a contrast between the old covenant and the new covenant. The old way of doing things and the new way that Jesus is going to bring. The people, the Jewish people, they're familiar with their laws and then with the customs that have been added to those laws, their own rituals that they do, and, and, and the hopes that are associated with those laws and customs and rituals. 
The Jewish people uh, have been made aware of their sins and their shortcoming. They know how holy and pure and righteous God is and, and how much we fall short as people. And they have laws to guide them in righteous paths. And they have uh, rituals that they do when they fall short. They have sacrifices that they offer to, to ask God for forgiveness. They have uh, ritual washings that they do to try to wash off their uncleanness. And, and those things have served a purpose and they, they help un people understand their need for grace and for, for mercy and for, for redemption. And yet Jesus is helping us see that they fall short, that they don't accomplish all for which they are intended, that they, that they, that they simply point towards something that's gonna be greater. And I'm gonna walk you through, help you see this in the story. In verse three, the very first kind of announcement of there is a problem, uh, Bible commenters see on the lips of Mary. So Mary is the first one. She says, these people have no more wine. The wine has run out. And this is understood as a symbolism of the old covenant. The old ways of doing things have run dry. It's not enough. They don't satisfy. They can't fully accomplish their mission they fall short. They're no longer bringing the life and the joy for which God intends them. The Jewish traditions and laws and practices are not able to bring about salvation. So then in verse 6, it's noted, nearby stood six stone water jars. And listen to this. This is a key to understanding this text. The kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. So it's not just any jars. It's not just, hey, hey, hey grab, a, grab a jar. It's like he, 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 Jesus draws their attention to these particular six stone jars that are used by the Jews for ceremonial washing. There's some interesting uh, things about the, stars, the, 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 the jars. One of the, the fact that their stone is unique. That's, that's rare. It's costly. But it's better uh, it's the best they have because uh, they were so concerned with purity and they, they, that if somebody had fouled up hands or they had touched something unclean and they went to the water jar to wash their hands and instead of waiting for someone to kind of pour water under their hands, if they had touched the jar, leaned on the jar with unclean hands, pottery jars would have to be shattered and broken and had to make new ones. But if they were made out of stone, well, those could be washed and, and, and considered clean again. So this is the finest example that they have of, of this is the highest quality they have for washing. It may have been a, a priest's house or something. Now, it's also interesting. So, so, so ritual washing for the Jews was very important. They, they, wanted to be, they wanted to be clean. And the cleanliness was not just physical, you know, to, to, to wipe off the, 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 the dirt from their feet and the dirt from their hands. And they would actually go and, and wash their hands after every course of a, of a banquet. They'd constantly have them to be rewashed. But it's also, in the Old Testament, symbolic of our spiritual uncleanness that we've done evil things. We, our hearts have been made unclean. We, we, it's not just our outside, but it's our, actually our inside. It's a major theme for Jesus that it's actually, it's actually the inside of us that makes us unclean, not just the outside. And that our deepest need is not to wash our hands, but to wash our souls. And, and so much of, of, of the sacrificial system that we see in the Old Testament, the ritual washing is, is really teaching us the lesson that, that we need to repent, we need to be made new, we need to be washed clean so we can be in the presence of a holy 
and righteous God. And one of the, 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 the problems for the Jews was they, they, that every time they washed themselves, they could, they could just touch anything that was unclean, like a, the wrong animal or, or the, you know, the, a, a dirty fabric or, or they, 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 some piece of blood. or any, So many things could make them uh, ritually unclean. They had to keep always going back to the jars, always going back to these water basins and do this ritual washing over and over and over again. There was no sense of permanent cleanness, just always washing, washing, washing. It's significant, the number of jars. Numbers are, are, are a big uh, thing in, in throughout the Old and New Testament. Uh, what's, the, what's the symbol, what's the symbolic number of perfection? Anybody know? Seven. Seven is the most complete number. We have seven days in a week. God created the world in seven days. Seven is completion and perfection. Now, the most incomplete number is zero, okay, nothing, but it's not, the story's not going to work with uh, zero jars, okay? The next most incomplete number is six. It's like, oh, man, you almost got there. It's, almost, it's pointing out the fact that you almost got that A. You, you know, you, you almost uh, filled up the tank with gas. You, you almost got there, but you didn't. You didn't. It's not complete. So six emphasize, well, it's a good start, but it's, it's incomplete, and it's not by accident, I think, that there are six of these ceremonial washing jars. So you have these six things in recommending, uh, uh, representing incompleteness. They're there for the ceremonial washing, which is a symbol of, of the washing in the Old Testament. And we have here an indication that they are just incomplete. No matter how much you wash them, they're never going to really wash your soul. Now, this, this uh, story has taken on new meaning in my house because we had a certain uh, adventure yesterday. Uh, yesterday, uh, I woke up uh, somewhere between 5 and 6 a.m. to the most horrible smell I have ever smelled in my life. And I didn't know what it was in my fog of waking up. I didn't know what it was. I yelled, who's burning onions? What's going on? I thought the house was on fire. And I got up and, and I walked around. I woke up joy and I walk around the house like Something, something's on fire. And I walk around the house. I, I just can't find smoke. I walk out of my pajamas out in the street. I'm looking for whose house is on fire. I can't, I can't figure it out. Joy says, well, maybe it's gas. I'm like, oh my gosh, the house is going to explode. We have a gas leak. We wake up all the kids. We get the dog. We get our new bunny rabbit. We load them dog and bunny rabbit and children that are frustrated. We woke them up on their one day to sleep in. We load them all in the car and we drive away. We call PG&E. We, we, maybe we have a gas link. I go back, meet the PG&E guy. As he walks up, he goes, you have a skunk. <laughs> he said, I smelled your skunk halfway down your block. And I'm like, oh, man, well, you want to come in with me in case it's still there? And he walks in with me. He's like, oh, man. He's like, he said, I get called on skunks all the time because people confuse a thing. And this is the worst I've ever smelled. <laughs> he said, I, I've, I've, I've only once before ever seen a house that's worse on the inside. That's a bad sign. <laughs> and we go in. There's no gas link. It turns out what has happened is one, I have two theories. So we have a dog door. And both theories involve the dog door. <laughs> One theory is that my old 16-year-old uh, dog woke himself, went outside, encountered a skunk, got sprayed, ran in, and wiped himself all over everything. That's the better theory. 
The other possible theory is the skunk came in through the dog door and went to town, okay? Now, now it is a big problem in our house. It is, it is. We, we, are, we are working and we are working to clean it. But, but I'll tell you, I, I posted this on Facebook yesterday morning and within like 15 minutes, I got a text from Renee Dunn with a video. She goes, you're never gonna believe this. They got us the day before. And she has a video of the skunks circling the house. And she said, here's what happened. The skunk sprayed the outside of her house the day before. And she said, you know what happened is Todd Dunn, her husband, uh, he found out they were living under his house. And he's like, he got them out of there and he, and he built screens around the house so they wouldn't go there anymore. And he had, he had video footage of the night we got hit, the video footage of the skunks circling his house trying to get back in. And Todd and Renee made a joke. And they said, ha ha, watch. They're going to go get Pastor DJ next. <laughs> but they didn't stop at Pastor DJ's house. We live just around the corner. And they came to our house. And they came and they got us. Thank you, Todd and Renee Dunn. Thank, thank you for, for passing on the blessing. We share it with you. We've also got this great video of, of Mark Henley, like hightailing, hopping over a skunk to escape their house. But the skunks have attacked, okay? So now, now we've got a problem, and, and, we're, and we're Googling, and we're researching, and we're, we're trying to figure out concoctions to wash our dog and wash our floors. And, and we got the hydrogen peroxide, and we got the vinegar, and we, and we got the baking soda, and we're blending them together, and we got this special skunk shampoo that you guys loaned us. Thank you very much. And, 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 and we're washing our dog over and over again. We're mopping our floors, and we've got pots of vinegar everywhere. We are just desperately trying. And you know what else is worse? Because I didn't realize it was a skunk, we put our dog in both vehicles <laughs> before, before we learned. So our, our cars smell terrible. Todd and DJ are messing with me. Every time I walk by, they're like, you know, like it's on me. I can't get rid of it. I can't get it out of my nose, right? I am frustrated. I want a stronger chemical to clean and to scrub. You know, it's like, it's like I want to light my nose on fire and rebuild it. I mean, it's just, it's such a problem, right? But we are going to be, and everyone who's had this happen to us to tell us, hey, man, it takes three weeks. It's going to be three weeks. But I am just constantly frustrated. I just want to, I just want to wash more. I want a more powerful agent uh, figuring out how am I going to get this smell off of me, this filth from this skunk? How do we purify the home? A similar problem that the Jews faced all throughout uh, the, the Old Testament, and we, we see it now appearing in the New Testament, is they have their ritual washing, and they're washing all the time, but their washing is incomplete. They're, they're, it, only wa it only cleans their hands for one course, and then they got to go wash their hands again. It only cleans their hands until they happen to touch something, then they got to wash their hands. They wash their feet, they go out, they get dusty again, they got to wash their feet again. The same is true for their souls. They sin. They do the wrong thing. They offer a sacrifice. They feel some sense of, 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 of atonement with God, but, but, but they're, they sin again. And, and their hearts are corrupted, and, and, and now they have a, a problem of unholiness in them. And how are they going to be made clean? How is it going to happen? Jesus announces. He, he grabs a hold of the symbol of the ceremonial washing. These fine quality stone jars for which you have been going to make yourselves clean all throughout this wedding feast and all throughout your lives. I'm doing something new and better and more lasting. And it's in that those jars, those stone jars for ceremonial washing, he does his first great miraculous sign and fine wine 
overflows. And all the symbolic meaning of the wine running short and the party coming to a thud is reversed. No, no, the party is just getting started. God has saved the best for last. We know this is connected to this meaning because John in particular puts the very next thing that happens, which some people regard as one of the signs, as the cleansing of the temple. Now, the synoptic gospels put the cleansing of the temple at another time. They connect it with things like the cursing of the fig tree, another sign of, of kind of the, 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 fruit, the fruitlessness of the past and the fruitfulness of the future. But here it's connected. Immediately after this, Jesus goes and cleansed the temple, again claiming this, this system which you've relied on is incomplete. You need something to come in the future. And in contrast to empty, empty flasks of wine, Jesus provides them overflowing, abundant wine. They were trying to squeeze the last drops out of their flasks, and now they have 120 to 180 gallons of wine. That's 600 to 900 bottles of fine wine. This is symbolic of the abundance and the quality of the grace which is coming in the new covenant. We see wine as associated with the Messiah all the way back in the prophet of Isaiah. This is Isaiah 25, 6. On this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wine, the best of meats and the finest of wines. On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people, the sheet that covers all nations, and he will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. And that day they will say, surely this is our God. We trusted him and he saved us. This is the Lord. We trusted him. Let us rejoice and be glad in his salvation. Amen. And here we have that new, abundant, fine wine flowing. It is a symbol of God doing this great deed on the earth. That's level two. The last piece of level three that I want to explore with you to close is simply this. How do you apply this to your life? So level one, there's this story of this, this, this great miracle and water turned to wine. Amazing. Level two, you learn, oh my goodness, there's this new covenant, there's this new salvation, there's this new wine which, which can come in and, and heal and transform. Level three is applying this to your life. How do you apply this to your life? C.S. Lewis says that God doesn't do parlor tricks. Like he's not just doing a miraculous power. Hey, wasn't that cool? Want to see another one? He's doing something for the purpose of evoking a response. And we see the response God wants in verse 11. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. So the sign is intended to reveal his glory and for them to believe in him. So I want to ask you, first of all, do you see the glory of Jesus in the story? When you look at Jesus, when you read the Gospel of John, when you, everything that you know about Jesus, can you see his glory? There are some people who are at the wedding feast and they miss the glory. The wedding guests, the master of the ceremonies, they love the wine, but they miss the message. Don't miss the message. Don't miss the glory. May Jesus be more to you than simply a parlor trick or something to enjoy occasionally on Sunday. Are you tasting the wine? Are you tasting this new wine that he will bring to you? And of course we know 
that Jesus later on the night that he's betrayed, he takes a cup of wine. He says, this is my blood. It's shed for you. This is a cup of the new covenant poured out for the permission of sins. The same symbol is used for that which will truly bring you eternal life, which will truly make you clean. Are you tasting this fine wine in your life? You have simply to ask the Lord of the great banquet to give you this wine. Oh Lord, I'm not gonna trust in myself anymore for my own cleanliness, my own salvation. I need you. Lord, would you give me this wine? And finally, this, another way to apply it to your life is to consider as a metaphor for you, you as the water. The water cannot do anything by its own power to change itself into wine. And I think if some of you are honest, uh, maybe you've been water trying to turn yourself into wine, right? No matter how much I try, I keep making the same old mistakes. I keep being the same old plain and sullied me. I keep, I keep running out. I keep running dry. But if you trust the Lord of the banquet, he, by his miraculous power, can turn you into a new wine. Lord God, we just thank you. We thank you for your power. We thank you for your glory. God, lead us in this, in this study as we continue on of the other signs. We pray you'd help us to understand what it means in our life, God. We pray that you, in fact, would bring that cleanness, that you would be Lord of our lives. God, not just, uh, not just some distant person we admire, but be a friend who's, who's walking with us in this life. God, bring, make it so. May we drink of this wine, this cup of salvation. May we know your redemptive power in our lives. May you turn our water into wine. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If any of you would like prayer for any reason, we have uh, people that are right here. And you can come and uh, pray with them. And uh, if you're new with us, I'd love to meet you and let you know a little bit about the church. And we're going to gather uh, right over there. Hear now this, uh, this, this blessing, this, this benediction. May the great God of the banquet, the one who knows how your wine has run dry, the one who knows how all of our own moral efforts have failed, may he turn your water to wine. May he fill your vessel. May he create in you an un unbelievably abundant source of life as he sends his grace and mercy and his forgiveness to you.